Welcome to season four of the Build Podcast. I'm your host, Devin McDonald, and this season is all about the journey to the boardroom. We're going to be interviewing seasoned and newcomer B2B software directors and highlight the steps they've taken in their careers to get a seat at the table. At the expansion stage, the role of an independent board seat becomes increasingly important. With a number of investors now sitting at the table, CEOs are inclined to want to bring someone on who does not have financial ties to the business and really has an independent point of view. Having an operator who truly understands the business model and ideally the target market can really make board conversations that much more meaningful. In my role as a partner at OpenView, I spend a lot of time with both aspiring and serial board members. And what I found more generally is that for most, becoming a board member is almost a rite of passage or a true symbol of success. Interestingly, there's not one path to get to the top, but there certainly are some underlying themes on how this subset of executives within the B2B software ecosystem have risen to the rank. In this season, we've pulled together a diverse set of operators who will share their unique stories. Hopefully their insights will help you either consider what type of persona to bring onto your board if you're a CEO and or help you think through what your path will be to get to the boardroom as an independent director. Enjoy. Today we are joined by Blair Christie. Blair is a global technology leader who's grown and transformed brands and businesses for over two decades. She joined Cisco in 1999 and worked there for 16 years. And over the course of her tenure with the business, she held several leadership roles, including SVP of marketing and ultimately the chief marketing officer role, as well as an executive officer role. Since leaving Cisco in 2015, she's been advising several public and privately held companies including, most recently, one of OpenView's portfolio companies, Logical. And she also serves on the board of directors with MindBody, which she helped take public in 2015. Blair, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. To get things started, would love to just hear a little bit about your career, particularly in the earlier days. Where did you start? Sure. So thanks for having me, Devin. This is a great topic and one I really enjoy discussing, not just because I think I have all the answers because I think that board service is such a powerful and incredible opportunity and point in your career that I'm always asking and learning as well. Uh, So early days of my career, I started in a field called investor relations. And at the time that I started in investor relations, it was very, very early and almost a nascent type of expertise. Very rarely did anyone except the CFO and the CEO actually talk with Wall Street on behalf of a public company. Um, And as I stepped out of college and into my first full-time job, working with Wall Street and putting a little bit more of a marketing, a little bit more of a proactive effort into it uh, was starting to become much more popular. So as my first CEO told me, stocks are sold, they're not bought. And so I went about with my finance and marketing degree to go sell the stock of a local water utility outside of Philadelphia, which doesn't sound incredibly exciting, except for the fact that when you're trying to sell a stock that has an amazing rate of return, that's pretty much guaranteed and a dividend, there's a really healthy investor set out there. So I went about the country visiting brokers' offices and doing dog and pony shows talking about a really interesting little utility stock that has actually since tripled and uh, split about six times since that uh, that time about 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I started. I'd stayed in investor relations because it was a really great place to see, have a bird's eye view of the company. You needed a finance background, you needed a marketing background, you had to communicate, you had to understand strategy. And as the primary advocate and liaison for the investors, 
of the company, you really had to understand the organization. So you had an opportunity to speak with a lot of different leaders and a lot of different innovators throughout the company, be it from engineering, product development, or even sales, perhaps even operations or manufacturing. And that led me to Cisco. Had you always sort of dreamt of being on Wall Street? What drove you to to get into that career right out of the gates? Well, my background really was finance and marketing when I graduated from Drexel. And I had a chance to do a co-op program. Drexel is one of the primary schools that has a five-year program. You go to school for five years. And for four of those years, you work six months and you go to school six months. I and love so that model. It, it, it was genius. so powerful. It was so powerful because frankly, my first two co-ops, I realized very quickly, this is not what I wanted to do mm-hmm. when I got out of school. And that would have you know, taken me several years after college to figure out. But by my third co-op, I had become aligned with a really charismatic and a really influential leader in the business community in Philadelphia, a gentleman by the name of Nick DiBenedictus. He worked for the electric utility at the time, Pico, running government affairs and all of its communications and all of its community relations, which is a very big deal for utility of that size. And then he became CEO of a company called Aqua America. And as a result, who he was also a Drexel grad, he took me from his from Pico to his new company. And really, again, was the one who told me stocks need to be sold. They're not just bought. And as he went into this new role as CEO, he knew he needed a much more proactive and probably a fresher look into the investor's face than what they had done before. So with my marketing background and my finance background, that was perfect. Plus, I was going back and I finished my MBA And I did that in investment management, thinking I'd want to go to Wall Street. But I realized quickly investor relations was the right place for both uh, my skill set as well as my personality. So let's talk about the jump from Wall Street to Cisco then. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to hear about how your career grew and flourished at Cisco. Sure. Well, I had since moved to a small technology company. And remember, this was the mid to late 90s, so right after the Netscape IPO. And all of the focus around technology started to grow. And really, like the, the web and the internet was brand new. So everything started to change. And I realized quickly utility was not going to be the area for me. I went to a small tech company and got very involved in an industry organization, an investor relations professional organization. And through that work, uh, they had local chapters. They did a lot of continuing education, a lot of work to keep professionals really up to speed on how to work with Wall Street, latest rules, regulations, and so forth. I met a woman who ran IR at Cisco, and she had an opening. We started talking. We hit it off. And the next thing you knew, my husband and I were relocating from Philadelphia to the San Jose, California area. And that was in 1999. And I joined Cisco really at the very beginning of, or almost the height of the tech bubble. It was a pretty wild time. Very little of what I learned in my fundamental investment management classes actually applied to valuation at the time. If you recall, investors were looking at the number of eyeballs on a website. They were looking at the number of job openings at tech companies and applying valuation from there. So it was a really interesting time to be there. But frankly, what was most interesting was when the bubble burst. After Cisco became the largest market cap in the world, we actually, just like many others, saw a significant decline in value over a very short period of time. And being at a company during a time of crisis is actually when you learn the most. So I became very close with the executives of the company, 
investor relations takes a lot of the executives out to the investors. We were very active with the investment community. So I was able to grow my career and grow my leadership position at the company through investor relations, then through building a very large corporate communications team. We brought about six organizations together, totaled about 700 people and created the first corporate communications team, which I ran for several years. And then we folded that into worldwide marketing and government affairs and tech policy. And that's when I became the chief marketing officer at Cisco. And this happened over a 16 year period of time. So it sounds like Nick Benedictus was really influential to you. Yes, um, as very a, much so. A, a mentor earlier on in your career. Who else influenced you intentionally, unintentionally, and, and how so? Sure. Well, you know, I can never answer this question without talking about my mom, which may sound kind of kitschy, but she was a pretty, not a pretty, she was probably the most influential person in my life, not just for the obvious reasons, but after my parents divorced and she became a single mom for many years, she had to go back to work. And over the course of her career, much later in life, I think she was probably 42 when she went back to work, she was incredibly successful. So from her, I learned work ethic. I learned about optimism. I learned how to compartmentalize and to keep moving. The resiliency gene definitely passed through. Um, I learned a lot about seeing things if you want to achieve them as opposed to just not visualizing and, and just the power of your mindset and how far that can go. So she was really helpful and got me into Drexel. We weren't even sure we'd be able to afford it. Got me into college and out of college. And, and certainly then I met Nick DiBenedictus, who was incredibly generous with his counsel and advice. And then moving to Cisco, I had two really important leaders. The first one was our CFO, our chief financial officer at the time, Larry Carter. He was a very key uh, leader in my life and in my career and was uh, very much a supporter. I would dare say a sponsor, which is different than a mentor. Sponsors are different. Sponsors are the ones who stick up for you when you're not in the room. Mentors are the ones who give you sage advice and help you see yourself in the mirror. But Larry Carter was very much a sponsor for me. He was also CFO at the time where Cisco went through some very intense moments after the market crashed. And then also John Chambers, who is the former CEO at Cisco, was a CEO when I came and we both retired from Cisco about the same time, not too long ago. And I worked very closely with him as well throughout the years, through everything, our growth into China, our shift into new businesses, the ability to make over 150 acquisitions to going from 35,000 to 70,000 employees. I mean, you name it. And he also very much acted as a sponsor, but also a teacher because his mindset and his value system was really powerful when it came to driving the culture at Cisco, which I credit very much for Cisco's success over the decades. Having Larry and, and John Chambers as as not only mentors, but sponsors, obviously, it's incredible. You know, would love to just understand more. I mean, how did you get access to that? I mean, Cisco, sure. is, this, is a, this is a big company. Sure. Would love to just hear about how you started that relationship and really kind of helped build that relationship. Sure. Well, you know, I was fortunate to be in an organization, Investor Relations, that had that regular access to the leadership team. Larry and John were incredibly important to me and have since stayed as very personal, good friends. But being fortunate to be in an organization or a discipline, I should say, of investor relations that allows you access to the entire leadership team, you really get a chance to learn a lot. You get to learn about how you 
want to show up as a leader and also how you don't want to show up. So there were a number of engineering leaders such as Jayshree Lalal and Pankaj Patel and Mike Volpe, who led both strategy and then pieces of the business, Maura Mazzolo and others who just took a lot of time and were, I think, very generous in their sort of counsel and sort of advocacy for me over time. But, you know, um, it wasn't that they were just nice or that I was just nice. I worked very, very hard. Cisco had a culture of work hard, as so many of the tech companies did, still do, but certainly during that period of time, you know, the market opened at 6.30 a.m. on the West Coast and I was there. And the market closed at 3, but I was still there at 6.30 p.m. because that's when the engineers actually were just getting started. So, you know, I worked very hard. I asked a ton of questions and I know both John and Larry often chuckle when we reflect on those years. For every piece of information I had for them, I had another set of questions. So that that characteristic of curiosity combined with hard work and then finally just really, again, sounds very cliche, but focusing on results, not just charisma or where you show up, more how you show up and the results that you provide, I think go a very long way. And from that perspective, Devin, or anyone, I, I think that's where you start to align with different sponsors and different mentors. Because, you know, as a leader myself, if I can find the best and the brightest that make me look like the best and the brightest, I'm going to advocate for them, you know, as long as I can. And I think that's what happened in my case and certainly what I've done at while I was at Cisco and in my later roles, right? Finding those right talents and really making sure they have the stage and the support to shine. Right. I mean, you've had an amazing career. You have worked incredibly hard. You've aligned yourself with with great leaders, mentors, sponsors, if you will. You know, there had to have been some tough points along the way. And and I, I want to ask you a, a couple questions about times where there were some low points, because I think it's inspirational to our audience as they're kind of thinking ahead to their future and yeah. You know, want to get to that sort of C level and want to get to, as we're talking about today, to the boardroom. Can you mm-hmm. talk us through a point that kind of stands out to you where it was kind of, you know, not that you hit rock bottom, but that it was a struggle and you managed mm-hmm. to kind of get, you know, keep, keep moving forward? Sure. Sure. Well, yeah, it's an interesting question because as I look back, I have to admit there's no one moment where I cringe, right? I look back and think, oh, God, thank God I'm not at that point. Or, wow. How could I have done that? Or how could that have happened? I I just don't have that. And part of it is, I believe, you know, how you approach things, right? There's never just one way to skin a cat. So you always have to look at, well, if this doesn't go the way I expected, what's the alternative and what's the other opportunity? The second thing I would say is that, and again, this is slightly a side comment, your career is so important, but it's just one leg of a three-legged stool in your life, right? You've got your career, you've got your family and friends, and then you have your own individual passion, whatever that might be. And those are broad categories, but there's so much more to you than your career. And so that helps a lot, especially when you face a challenging time, because it gives you something to fall back on. And it also gives you the ability to bring perspective. So perspective, that's what my long-winded windup was, is perspective is huge. And in my most difficult time that I had after I thought about this question a bit, it really goes back to when I stepped into the chief marketing officer role at Cisco uh, and an executive officer. It was the most senior I'd been. I was only the second female on the CEO's staff and had been for quite some time. 
but I'd always been in a staff position, a communications position. This was really an operating position where I had to fight for budget. I had to fight for focus. We were not necessarily a zero budget allocation every year, but we certainly did reorganize a lot of our dollars and our investments based on results. And when you have, when you step into a a role with 1500 people and over a billion dollar budget, you're a really big target because they're engineering and sales and others who could use that for really great initiatives as well. So my biggest challenge was the very first year when we're going through the budgeting process and trying to really put hardcore results on our marketing outcomes. And it just didn't fly the first year. It was something brand new to Cisco. And it was really disappointing to me because my team had done so much work uh, to show the demand gen, to put it into bookings terms, to align with the sales organization along the same language and initiatives, and to put numbers to our activities, which frankly, is very hard to do with marketing. Most people just think, well, I like the logo and the tagline, but we really tried to put a science behind it. And the technology in marketing was changing to allow you to do that. And it took an entire two years uh, to get to that point across the company where people really appreciated our very, very talented sales team, our incredible engineering organization, finally realized that you could put a return to the activities you're doing. And I wasn't used to that. And that was really, I took it very personally. And so again, I go back to perspective. It took me some time to go to get through my own sort of ego and, and put some perspective and realize how I was going to have this particular organization show up as an equal operating arm of a company that large, yeah. right? At that time, we we're doing $50 billion in revenue. And it, again, it wasn't life-threatening. It wasn't even job-threatening, but it certainly diminished my energy at, at, at times. And when you're working that hard, you need a lot of energy, but putting perspective was really helpful and aligning more broadly with the organization. But it was a hard couple of months because then I had to go back to my team and let them know that you know the work they had done just hadn't quite gotten the outcome we were looking for. So rather than being despondent or moving to another organization, which people did at a company that size, how we were going to double down and um, remain resilient to drive for the resources we needed, but also the alignment that we needed. Got it. So I want to pivot a little bit and I want to start talking about the boardroom, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously you, uh, you're you on a very successful board now with MindBody. And I want to talk, I want to talk about what drove you initially to be on a board? And, sure. you know, when you were at Cisco and, and didn't have the board seat yet, mm-hmm. you know, what you thought of the board? What was your perspective mm-hmm. of, of what the that board seat entailed? Sure. And I kind of want to get into like how that perspective changed once you were actually in the seat. <laughs> totally fair. Absolutely fair. Well, the great thing about my, the role I had at Cisco is I was very involved with the board at Cisco. And the board at Cisco was very strong, very engaged. There was a group that had been around for a very long time and had seen everything, which can be very valuable. And then there were new members of the board who brought in new perspective, new insights, new understanding of the space, right? Uh, What was going on in telecom that was new to Cisco and so forth. So I attended the board meetings at Cisco and I always found it really interesting as an operator, you know, listening to our board speak, I would walk away with one of two feelings. One, I'd say, wow, that was really great insight. I appreciated how they saw something we couldn't, or I would walk away saying, oh my gosh, they have no idea what we're doing. And it has nothing to do with what they used to do. And that example wasn't even remotely relevant. And it was funny because it wasn't really 50-50. We got way more insight, but I, I would very quickly come to the conclusion that the board 
maybe if I didn't, or my peers and I didn't like the perspective or they weren't as clear and communicated, just that they didn't understand. So, you know, the board was always an interesting phenomenon. They were all incredibly successful in their own right. And they had great, unique insights to bring. And there were times where the board would gel and really be a valuable, powerful force. Again, that my favorite word, powerful force, right? For moving key strategic initiatives of the company forward, or it could just be a lot of listening to someone speak. And I enjoyed the board and I got very involved in several of the committees as well, given the role that I had. So I did understand the governance piece, which is a very big piece, but I was more excited about when they got involved in our strategy, not necessarily the operations of day-to-day, but the strategy and the insights that they could bring. So then flash forward when I jump onto a board myself and from time to time, I find myself pontificating. I have to stop myself and say, wait a minute, how relevant am I really making my point to this executive team in the room? To me, I can think of a thousand ways that it's relevant, but that's because of my experience in being in it day-to-day. And what I have to do as a board member is be much clearer and more concise on what insight I can bring to them right then, right there, that they can then go act upon, not just listening to a potential scenario that might occur because of something I had experienced in the past. So it's kind of funny, you know, as it goes around, same thing about being a parent, right? You remember very clearly what you did and didn't listen to with your parents. And now as a parent, you end up doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed being around our board at Cisco. I was on the board of several professional organizations, including the investor relations one I had referenced earlier, as well as the San Jose Tech Museum. So I knew that board service was something I was going to be interested in. As I, in my last, I guess I was remained at Cisco two years after I joined MindBody. So I joined MindBody as a private company before we went, uh, it went public, primarily because they were looking for some marketing expertise. They were looking for someone with experience in scaling. They wanted to bring on two independent directors prior to their IPO, and they needed some insight into from individuals who understood the governance of a board, which I did because of the experience I just shared. That was great. And I've enjoyed every second of it. And we've since gone public. I've since retired from Cisco and I'm working, you know, in, I I don't really say retired, but I guess in some ways I am, it's more of a part-time basis between board work and some initiatives. And so I have the capacity to be engaged where as often and wherever they need. And it's a different experience than being an operator, but it's incredibly rewarding. Got it. You know, I would love to uh, go back to when you initially had joined the Mind Body Board as a, mm-hmm. as a private company. Let's talk about that experience. I, I want sure. to hear about the transition from private to public and how that changed the dynamic in that boardroom, for sure. better or for worse. Yes. Well, you know, what's interesting, what I found with many private companies is that the board is, before they're, they go public, the board is really comprised of the partners or the main principals of the investors, right? And MindBody was no different. So as a private company, MindBody's board prior to myself and Graham Smith, who was the former CFO at Salesforce, there weren't any independent board members. There were a few executive board members, the two founders, as well as the investors who had been in the company for quite some time. So when two independents came on board, it was really interesting. A lot of people stopped talking and looked to us for our insight, which I I don't know if that's normal or not, but it was um, it was very appreciated because they just hadn't had that perspective in the past. There was so much institutional knowledge that a fresh 
purview or insight or opinion was really important. So it, it really was a distinction between the two independents and the investors. Now, what I also found was that some of the investors had been in there for so long, it was difficult for them to see something from perhaps a different side, right? A coin on a different side or a different perspective, however you want to use the analogy. So there was a healthy amount of dialogue. And I did find as an independent director, I had to back my opinion up with a number of pieces of evidence, more so than I do with my board at MindBody today, because we've all been in more similar situations as leaders of companies. Now, when we went public, everything changes. I often wonder why companies go public sometimes, because in this day and age, the governance piece and the demand and the pressure from Wall Street is so very hard, especially when you're a tech company and you're not profitable yet. You know, that rule of 40, where you really need to be growing over 40% year over year. And if you're not really driving that bottom line in an equivalent manner, it's very, it's, it, there's a lot of pressure when you're trying to grow fast and invest and get a first mover advantage. And what um, was the impetus for MindBody to want to go public at that very particular point in time? Well, MindBody was 10 years old. It wasn't a brand new company. It was 10 years old. They had a very healthy set of investors. Uh, they'd had a good return. And the investors were looking to move their capital that had been locked up for some time, as were the founders. We needed more capital, more importantly, because we were hitting a really important moment as a company that we needed to invest, not just through acquisitions, but through our own development, as well as geographic location. It was at a point where it was ready to go. We were hitting even a positive and the market's significant. The TAM is still very significant. It's huge. And we had a really powerful brand that no one else could match. And the buried entry was really, really big. So everything lined up, great leadership team, and they were ready to go. And it was the perfect moment in time. But all the all the textbook reasons you would expect and everything that you'd expect to happen when you go public happens, right? The CEO has to shift very, very quickly into being a public company CEO, where part of his job is actually getting out there on the road. The quarterly results become more and more important and more and more pressure, right? As you emerge from that growth company status, you have more reporting, which means your finance and your legal department has to grow as well, which is another investment. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's sort of hitting another level of maturity, almost like graduating to an adulthood. We skipped over actually a, an important question that I want to make sure we address in the podcast because I'm sure people are, are really curious to join a, a board like MindBody, a, a well-known company growing quickly, obviously at a certain stage of growth. It's a pretty sought after board seat. I would mm -hmm. love to hear you know, how that came to be. How did you, yeah. how did you hear about the opportunity? Was it a networking thing? Was it you mm -hmm. being proactive? What was the mm -hmm. game plan there? Sure. First, I'd say, you know, I always knew board service I wanted board service to be part of my next chapter. I have, I'm sure, at least one, maybe two more career chapters. But for this particular one, after all those years at Cisco, I knew board service was one of them. So I put it out in the universe. And I'm a big believer of putting your aspirations and your intentions out there to people I know, people I trust, people who have connections themselves, just to get the dialogue going. And, you know, getting on a board takes a very long time. It's not a job interview. It can take close to... I mean, I've even seen two years where individuals and candidates talk with the company and it's really based on the company's timing. So it's a long process and you need to be patient. And so I had started that putting out in the universe exercise, which was one thing. I also had started speaking with 
a recruiter or two here and there, more to get an idea of how I showed up as a potential board candidate. And again, even your board resume, which I'm not even sure anyone does anymore. It used to be a board CV. Even that is different than your operator CV and, and the skill sets that you bring to a board, right? Those softer skills. I call them the superpowers, your ability to communicate, your ability to hold your own in a room, right? Your ability to manage through crisis, your ability to listen, things that allow you to be a strong guide as opposed to a strong operator or different skill sets. So I started talking to individuals who would know that could give me perspective on how I showed up and what were the experiences that I could draw from my background that I could communicate to show that I would be a valuable board member. So that's one thing, putting it out in the universe. Another thing, getting yourself clear on what it is that you bring. And then for me, really, it came through a VC firm, right? A VCs are, they have a portfolio of companies. Often their founders and their CEOs are looking for independent directors. Starting in a private company, if it's your first or you're very early in the board service stage is really great. A little more chaotic, a little less governance, but definitely very rewarding because you start to see how companies work. And so it came through a, a colleague of mine recommended me to uh, the team over at IVP, who happened to be a big investor in MindBody. And one thing led to another. They introduced me to the company. I did a few interviews with the CEO and the CFO and met the executive team. I went to the company itself. I talked to several of the other board members. And there was a fit on both sides. Because remember, Devin, you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. You know, Board service comes with fiduciary and legal responsibility, frankly, they do tap your capacity. So you need to have an interest and a some sort of chemistry, both with the company and the team, if you're going to put your energy and your time and your resources into their efforts. That's actually the perfect segue to my next question, which is mm-hmm. let's talk about the capacity. We mm-hmm. just love to understand. I mean, I think people have a perception of what being a board member entails and they might just think, you know, showing up for that quarterly meeting, you know, maybe a little bit of prep work, but it's clearly a, a bigger job than that. Would love to hear more about your your two cents in, in that area. Right. Well, you know, again, it, it differs a little bit between private and public, right? When you're a public company, you actually have a set of meetings. You have a responsibility to show up. I mean, you'll find that even in the proxy, if you miss a certain amount of meetings, you actually, it has to be highlighted in the proxy. So, you know, when you're a public company, it's a little more consistent. You usually have four board meetings a year. If you're on a committee, you have committee meetings in between board meetings, perhaps even the day before. I'm the chair of the compensation committee. So we probably meet six times a year. In addition to the Ford board meetings, usually on the phone, usually an hour to hour and a half conference call or in-person meeting before a board meeting. When I was on the audit committee, I think we met probably eight times a year because there's quite a bit of work the audit committee does as the company prepares for its quarterly filings, as well as enterprise risk and so forth. So, you know, being on a board really is much more than the four meetings a year, at least it should be. And that doesn't include the governance examples I just gave does not include your role as an advisor, right? In my case, marketing, investor relations, communications, government relations, that's all expertise I bring. And I've spent many hours and sometimes even full days with those teams from MindBody in their offices, helping them work through their next opportunity, right? Talking about branding, discussing how to do an IR show, talking about some of the latest security policy that needs to be understood as well as individuals that need to be 
reached out to. So, so really helping them craft an architect. So it's quite a bit of engagement and usually dependent upon the CEO, how engaged the public company board member gets with the team. Now in a private company, it's very much up to the CEO and every CEO is different. Founders are different. They're in super hyper growth stage. The founder may not really want to talk to you. If things are going really well, you know, they give you great updates. They may pull you in for networking here and there, but they're just running and you're there to maybe fill in the gap on the sides if needed. If it's a challenging time or a big time of change or acquisition or something like that, you might find that you're talking to the CEO every week. I am participating as an advisor on one advisory board and we do one hour pre-planning calls every month and probably four broader calls during the year. So again, it depends, right? There's a full agenda for a public company board meeting and there'd be maybe no agenda at all at every meeting in a private company, but it does require capacity. It requires a set of competencies that you can bring to the table. It requires capacity that you have. So you have to have time for it. And then, you know, it does require a bit of, um, of a risk because you're jumping in as uh, a responsible member of a company and taking a bet on the executive team because you're not going to be there day to day to run the company. You're there to advise, but you still are responsible. So would love to just almost Mad Lib style. Have you filled mm-hmm. in the blank here? Okay. Um, so don't take a board seat if. You can't commit the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Number one. Yeah. I, I think that that makes total sense. And yeah. it, it kind of goes back to my last question. And I think people kind of have this idea of, you know, the board seat being a glamorous thing. But at the end of the day, yeah. if you want to really be a, a good board member, an impactful mm-hmm. board member, it's, it's mm-hmm. going to take time. I agree. And there's nothing more challenging than a board member who can't show up or doesn't show up. There's an etiquette and there's an expectation amongst the board itself, right? You are costing the company money. Varies at every different company, but you are an investment of the company. So you need to act as such. So yes, if you don't have the time, then I would highly recommend you wait. And how about this one? You are ready for a board seat if, and it can't be you have time. (laughs) Okay. So assuming you have the time, right? You're ready for a board seat. If I guess I would say you're ready to invest part of yourself into someone else's company, right? It's not your company anymore. It's not, you're not the operator. You're not in charge. If you have, if you're ready and are passionate or interested enough to invest yourself to another company's success or to lead another company's success, that's when you're ready for a board seat, right? You could be an operator and in the game, like I was a CMO at Cisco, or you can be semi-retired and not necessarily in an operating game like I am right now. But either way, I was ready to focus on another area that's either adjacent or completely different than what I had been focusing on to make another company successful. And if that's your guiding post or your guiding mantra, then you're definitely going to be a great board member. Awesome. Well, Blair, this has been so fun today. We have great. loved hearing about your journey to the boardroom. Sure. And congrats on congrats on a successful career. I know you've been super helpful to OpenView and to our portfolio companies just recently yep. joining the board, the advisory board of, of Logical. So again, thank you so much for your time and, and for sharing uh, all of these uh, insights with us. Great. Thanks for having me, Devin. It was my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you're listening to podcasts these days. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture 
and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.